so it's all about uh, maintaining, creating, maintaining, and uh, uh, maintaining means like a plant. You're watering that plant in order to keep it alive. You're also uh, maintaining those relationships by staying in touch with people that you've worked with. And I've been very uh, diligent about that over the years, and that pays off when you have something of uh, real worth and value and excitement to share with them. Welcome back to Nothing Shines Like Dirt, episode 28. I'm Elise Siebert. And I'm Leslie Shannon. Today, we are talking to film producer and composer Simon Tofik. We have a lovely conversation about reaching out and maintaining relationships, enjoying the process and the people, and and why wait? wait, Act act now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We can't. We can't help ourselves. <laughs> so, how did you get? Um, how did you get started in doing um, composing? Uh, I started as a, uh, a songwriter and in college, uh, but it was more of just a fantasy uh, hobby kind of thing. And uh, so, I was studying uh, political science and economics in college, and and writing songs in my spare time, and realized uh, that I really wanted to do something with that, but didn't have the courage to do it until I met uh, M. Night Shyamalan, who was studying film at NYU at the same time, and uh, and he would drag me to his film classes. I got to go to the film sets and meet his composers and all those folks, and then I just kind of saw, wow, I could really do this. And and he said, you're good, so if you want to do it, do it. You know, why are you holding back? Uh, and so he he and I wrote uh, one of my first song, real songs together, and it was him just kind of encouraging me to just do it. So, okay, you, uh, I need a song for my movie. Do you want to write one? Okay, so then go ahead, do it. And so I did, and it ended up in his movie, then it got pulled out of his movie, then it ended up in another movie, and uh, it was fascinating, uh, the experience of the highs and lows and then collaborating and finding out uh, what the film needed in terms of a song and what they didn't want. And so as a novice, I wrote a song with the title of the film in as the chorus. And he said, yeah, we can't use that in the movie because you're using the name of the movie in the song. So things like that, you didn't, you don't know until you do it. It's so interesting that you started with film scoring because I feel like composers I've met Mm -hmm. didn't start in that way. And that's kind of what you... Well, it's interesting because I wrote a, wrote the song, and it was and he and he had a composer for the film, and I just was writing a song. I didn't had no aspirations for film scoring, mm-hmm. so yeah, it's. But there are examples of, I think, uh, Junkie XL, the guy who did the music for Mad Max and uh, uh, the new Superman film. Uh, he was a DJ, and uh, they used one of his songs in a Blade movie. And he thought, wow, that's really incredible how they use the music. And, and and that got him the idea of, yeah, I think I'd like to do that. So then like 10 years later, now he's doing film scoring and he's not really doing much of the DJing or any of that stuff. But I think it's just giving you uh, access to that world in a way that you didn't think uh, it was possible or it wasn't, uh, so it wasn't open to you or then you meet some of the people who are actually doing it and you realize it's, uh, it's much more open in terms of uh, uh, their collaborate, collaborative uh, uh, possibilities, and it's not as technically hard as you might thought might have thought it was. Or so it's. I think any if you have the interest, then all you need is a crack in the door, and then you'll get in there. Yeah, as most things, it's yeah. music is such a it adds such a visceral experience to watching film as well. Right. Um, it can make or break a film too. Like if you have if you have like cheesy bad scoring, it really can take you out of the moment. It can. Although I will say that uh, I I find it, it, I do see it as a compliment when when you do hear that uh, music can be seen as a make or break element. But I will respectfully add that I find that where that's true, it's usually a result of. Uh, a, a deficiency within the film mm. and the music can't really save a bad <laughs> performance or bad writing and it can't really uh, break a film with a really good performance or good writing you'll if you were to isolate and I've I've done this where there have been films where I I'm just cued into the music and it's just really bad 
to me, mm-hmm. but nobody else notices, and they love the movie. And it to me, it shows you that even a bad score can't ruin a really good story, a really good performance. Uh, and but if those things aren't there, then no matter how good the music is, it's going to it'll also take you out. If the music is too well done, you're noticing the music, mm-hmm. and right. you're. And you're watching the film going, I'm just tuned into the music. This performance is completely flat and blah, blah, blah. It's because they're trying to make up for something that's not right. It's not there enough. Uh, And maybe it's the editing. Maybe it's just a bad day. But uh, I don't think that music can really uh, do much to to correct things. I think it can highlight uh, those things that are really good. And so you've got movies like The Social Network where it's got great writing, it's got great performances, great direction, great subject, and an amazing score. And I'll ask friends of mine, what did you think of the score? And they said, yeah, I didn't even notice it. I was so wrapped up in the film. And that score won Best Oscar, uh, Best Score uh, you know, in the Oscars. And I was tuned into the score when watching it. But so many other people will watch it and they'll have to rewatch it in order to notice the score. Mm-hmm. Right, that's As, almost yeah. an ultimate compliment too. Though, Absolutely, yeah. Because it means that you have become a part of the story instead of being yeah. something that sticks out from the story. Like a great performance. A really, really good performance is one where people don't know that you're acting. And of they just believe that you're the, you're the, you're the character. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then how did you transition into producing? Because now you're producing feature films. It came by accident. Uh, like As most, most grace things, things do, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Because uh, I would never wish this upon myself uh, in that way. Uh, I'm just kidding. Uh, well, I I took a break from music uh, because I was at the time involved in the tech sector, and so I created the world's first online help desk. This is many many years ago, and that led to the idea of turning it into a startup. So then uh, I got a lot of uh, really good support and investor interest. So I took a break from music for a couple of years to just run, start and run this uh, tech startup. It was called Green Button, and uh, we had a lot of really cool early success. And, uh, and it was before iPhones and all that. So we found that we had to build a lot of the technology that now we take for granted. So we were a little too early to really take advantage of the opportunity but it was exciting, and we got to meet and deal with a lot of uh, uh, investors and uh, virtual—not uh, virtual capitalists, but uh, venture capitalists—and uh, I learned a lot about business. And that was the second company I'd run. I had had a company uh, years before that, and it just uh, reinforced my uh, excitement about being an entrepreneur and developing things and leading teams and. Uh, selling and uh, evangelizing people who didn't know about what you're doing. And so all the things that I later learned were uh, qualities that uh, producers uh, are usually employing. So once I left the tech world, uh, and uh, so the the short story is uh, I was doing all this tech stuff and uh, saving money so that someday I could leave all of that and just focus on music. And then 9-11 happened. And uh, I realized uh, that that day that I was uh, aiming for might never happen because everything can end in a moment's notice. And I had friends that I lost uh, in the towers, and it just really drives home the fact that uh, you have to act now uh, on your dreams. So as soon as I had the chance, I, uh, I left the tech world uh, and focused full-time on music. And so I rented a recording studio full time and just sat about uh, just figuring out what kind of music I wanted to do, how I was going to do it, and still had no idea it was going to be in film. Sooner or later that happened. And then as a composer in film, I got to see uh, producers and directors just figuring out what they were doing. So things like strategic planning, festival planning, uh, partnerships, uh, publicity, marketing, all of those things uh, were still much further down the road for a lot of these filmmakers. And I'm scoring the film and thinking about that stuff because I brought it with me from the startup world. Uh, Very accidentally, I didn't want to be thinking about that stuff, (laughs) but I'm getting excited about the film. I think it's very promising and uh, certainly will help my career as a composer uh, if more people get to see this film. So... 
so I started asking questions and uh, making suggestions, and sooner or later that ended up uh, being uh, being something that was welcomed in these uh, uh, these teams. So uh, sooner or later, uh, filmmakers started asking me if I could come in earlier uh, before a lot of those decisions were made uh, to help out with funding, to help out with marketing, to help out with building the crew, casting, all of that stuff. And so that led to the producing. That's amazing. So with producing, what is what is your favorite aspect of it? Uh, I see myself as a creative producer because I started out as a composer in in the film business. So I don't want to be the adult in the room all the time because uh, <laughs> I find that as a composer, my job is to always think positively about whatever suggestions come along, whatever notes I get. It's essentially to say yes to everything and figure out a way to make the impossible happen, which is not unlike being a producer where you're faced with incredible challenges and you have to make them real. But a lot of times as a producer, you're not always saying yes. You're A lot of times you're saying no. And so I found my way of thinking as a composer has bled into producing where it's not saying no, it, maybe it's no for now. And let's we can find a creative way to make what you suggested as a director, I can make that possible. It might not be exactly what you suggested, but given our budget, given the schedule, here's another way we can make that idea work. And so I'm trying to reframe things. I'm trying to look at creative ways of making uh, very difficult ideas uh, live. And so it could be we don't have enough money for uh, uh, for uh, editing, uh, editing for X number of weeks. So I'll, I, from my tech background, I'll figure out a way to build the the editing uh, workstation so we're not having to rent that, for example, or the backup system or helping with the DIT. And, and so I've done all of those things. And that comes from, I think, just not uh, looking at this as, well, there's a very hard and fast way this can be done and thinking at it, thinking about it as a creative saying, okay, I know where it needs to go. I might be able to figure out another way to get there, but I still think we need to get there. Right. So, you have to be yeah. creative in the indie filmmaking yeah. world. <laughs> yeah, you have no choice. You can't throw money at a at a problem. You have to. Well, even in the bigger bigger films, like Imperium was an indie, but it was certainly uh, bigger because we had a studio behind us uh, with Lionsgate. And still, uh, you money doesn't uh, solve your problem. Yeah. You still have to have think to. creatively <laughs> mm-hmm. because the uh, once you throw money at the problem, uh, you you find that the problem exists, only the uh, the issues around it have maybe gotten, uh, they have more paper surrounding them, or mm-hmm. there are more people to uh, to weigh in on it, but it doesn't really solve the fu- the underlying problem. So treating the, the, the symptoms and not the disease? Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That film is really, it really affected me watching <laughs> I just Good. watched that's, it, that's and the, I was that's like, the idea. oh, especially, it's so timely. Um, yes. I mean, it came out last year. Came out last last August, and uh, yeah, it when we were trying to get it funded, pe- the the challenge was getting people to realize this was a real problem, and a lot of the responses we got were, "I'm not sure if this is real, or uh, are you making a bigger thing uh, than it really is, uh, or people just don't want to deal with this because mm-hmm. uh, there are other issues uh, at play. There's the election, and and this was before." Uh, white supremacy became uh, part of the the equation that we were all trying to tackle within the election. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then when it came out, then the challenge was: uh, Are people too fatigued with this issue, or with the uh, with the the just the confusion of uh, the election? So it it faced challenges on every at every step. But the consistent responses we got uh, when people saw the film were. Uh, amazing performance by Daniel Radcliffe. I didn't know yeah. he was capable of this, or I'd never seen this side of him before. And I had no idea that this was a real thing, a real yeah. problem. Uh, so those are the most consistent things. And then, of course, you get the uh, you get the compliments about the filmmaking and the uh, the story, but the most consistent were performance and oh, just the issue. Being such dealt with. strong performances. I, um, what was the actress's name again? 
Um, Tony Collette. Yes. She oh, yeah. She's amazing. Yes. <laughs> she's she's always amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, I remember when we were funding, we were fundraising for the film, and I was in L.A. and uh, taking Ubers everywhere, and I would quiz the, uh, the drivers because most of the drivers I got were filmmakers. And once I found that out, I saw that I had uh, a little bit of a, a, a lab uh, from this, the time they picked me up. So then I would I would uh, interview them about, okay, so what do you think about this actor? And what do you think about that actor? And consistently, Toni Collette uh, got the response of, I will see anything that she's in. <laughs> yeah. And I had not heard that before. So it was, and it, it proved uh, extremely prescient because every every take that she gave us was different and each one of them was as good if not better than the last it, watching it as an actor i was the choices she was making were so smart so so, so yes. smart and really powerful and really as an audience member connected you to yeah. to her and so. yeah Com- it's totally genuine yeah. uh, it's completely convincing and authentic uh, mm-hmm. she was it was uh, an event to see her on set so i'm very grateful that we got to work with her and being, what was your role as a producer with that film? Like, what were some of the things that you kind of... It was uh, across the board. I had my hands in uh, everything. Uh, we we had a scheduling challenge because uh, Daniel Radcliffe had a very full uh, dance card. So he was on the film, and then there, he had another film that came up, and then we had to reschedule. So funding came and went, and then we had to chase the money again. So... Uh, so we were all very involved, uh, each of us, in trying to raise the money. Uh, we were all involved in casting. Uh, so we would have these marathon uh, conference calls uh, every day. And uh, I'm in New York. Uh, the director was in L.A. at times. There was another producer in L.A., another producer in Atlanta. And uh, and it was a constant uh, challenge for ev- all of us to stay on the same page. And we were all doing... A lot of the same things, as as well as doing our own distinct things, but uh, fundraising, casting, uh, pre-production, we were all there at production uh, for the shoot, uh, post-production. I live in post-production as a composer, so uh, I did a lot in that regard, uh, working with the post-production supervisor, uh, dealing with the post houses, dealing with delivery, and so then you're dealing with uh, attorneys, you're dealing with the uh, the studios and the distributors and the sales agents. So you have your hands in all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. And we're all fairly young uh, producers, so we wanted to at least have exposure to every aspect of it so that we could see how it was being done. And we did have some senior producers on board as executive producers, and so we were the annoying kids in the room asking, well, how do you do this and how do you do that? <laughs> and, and, then also, <laughs> exa- and, and the other way was to just keep our mouth shut mm-hmm. and just listen oh, while uh, those that... Uh, when the attorney's doing his job with uh, certain other uh, members of the uh, the investors or the studio, and really just knowing when to shut up and listen and take notes and uh, and help in any way you can, uh, and then also being uh, brave enough to ask a stupid question and know that uh, it is a stupid question and uh, phrase it as such so that they know that they are teaching you, they are mentoring you, and even though you may be on paper their boss that uh, we can't do this without them. And uh, we are asking so that we can help them do their job better as well. So it was a constant uh, shifting of roles and responsibilities and uh, uh, just very grateful to to have had that experience because uh, I know that as a team, we should have had a few other films uh, to get us to that place. But... uh, as circumstance uh, happened, we were in a very uh, fortunate position. We had a great script, great director, and a uh, great cast. So uh, it was learn learn as much as you can while uh, staying in the, the roller coaster car while this crazy journey is about to take you into some very uh, unexpected places. Cool. How long did it take you guys to make the film? About two years. Uh, a year, I'm trying to think, uh, I think we first... Uh, started. It really started with casting, and then that process took several months. And uh, then once we had our uh, soft locked cast, then it took several more months to get locked dates. And then, uh, so I'd say it was probably six to nine months for that process to to play out. And then once uh, 
Daniel was uh, confirmed for it, his dates were within six weeks of confirmation. So we had to race to get to production. And uh, so then it was a race to raise the funding because the funding had uh, had been so uh, tenuous because of the, the tenuous dates. And, um, and then we shot for about five weeks and then post-production was uh, easily uh, another nine months. So uh, because Lionsgate came on board, we had an, a very accelerated uh, post-production schedule. Uh, I think we wrapped uh, right before Thanksgiving of 2015 and then uh, they wanted to release it originally in July of 2016. Uh, so it was a very accelerated uh, post schedule, and then it shifted to August. But I mean, we still had to deliver uh, pretty quickly. Yeah. Can you talk about raising funds? Because um, you said you got the funds and then lost the funds and then got them because of the, the way sure. the cast moves, and not everybody in the audience might understand how. Uh, well, in our case, it came through uh, as a result of casting. So one of the things that I've learned uh, in this process is. For indie film casting uh, or indie film budgeting on the low budget side, uh, so much of it, the budget is dictated by how much it costs to make the film. And then when you get to the next tier, it's not so much how much it costs to make the film, it's also about how much, uh, how much can you uh, convince people to invest in the film. So your budget is often dictated by your cast. So, because uh, a lot of times I would present a budget uh, to big production companies or investors and they'd ask what the budget was and I'd, sh I'd present a budget and they'd say, well, okay, you don't have uh, uh, a budget for your cast yet for uh, a named or a bankable cast. And I said, well, yeah, that's this is how much the film will cost to make. And they said, well, uh, that's not what I'm asking. I'm asking how much is this film going to be worth uh, as a sellable commodity? And therefore, uh, so what cast are you aiming for? And then build a budget around that. So that was something that we learned on Imperium. Uh, so with uh, Daniel and Tony and, and all the great cast members that we had, it, uh, it created a much bigger budget than we were expecting. Uh, because originally, uh, Dan Ragusis, the direct writer-director, had uh, created this as... Uh, not only just a great uh, thriller, but also as a vehicle so that he could make it within a contained budget. And that was probably half of what uh, the film ended up costing, uh, because then once we brought in our cast, it it became a much bigger budget because it became a much more valuable film. So um, a part of what uh, filmmakers can benefit from is figuring out how much their film is going to be worth. That's a very difficult thing to, to figure out because it's your creative baby. And to now think about commodifying it and monetizing it, that's where your producers come in. And having somebody who can very coldly and rationally assess what this film is going to cost to make and what it can be sold as, not just uh, as uh, a collection of costs, but rather as a value proposition – that's where investors can now see this as something that they can recoup from or something that they can make uh, money from or sell to other markets and uh, and things like that. So then you're looking at uh, cast as uh, not a, a cost center, but also as an investment. So bringing in a cast that now makes your film bigger and you're, it, that will seep into how you're writing parts, how you're uh, – how you're locating the film, uh, different crew members, different producers. So now all of a sudden your film starts to balloon in scope, in budget, uh, but also in in terms of the opportunity that uh, you want to present to an investor uh, and to other producers uh, because there is that that side of filmmaking which is a personal expression. And then there's what Woody Allen says. It's not called. Uh, it's called show business, not show show. <laughs> so when you make that <laughs> leap, uh, that mental leap of now I am involved in a in an industry, then you start to see how uh, a film can be. Unfortunately, I'll use the word dissected, but that's essentially what happens when you present your budget and your pitch deck and your script and your cast list, and people are going to very quickly start to 
run the numbers and figure out the logistics of how this film can be assembled and there, therefore made and sold. And this way you can make your next film. So uh, my job as a producer is to do whatever I can to help the filmmaker make their vision a reality, but it's also representing the investors so that they can use their money to help the, the filmmaker make that film a reality, but also make this film a reality in the marketplace that can recoup and therefore all those parties can come back to the table and make another one. Yeah. Hopefully a bigger one and, and uh, more ambitious and, and more creative, but that's only possible when uh, you can make everybody whole, when they don't look at, at making a film as, uh, as a loss or as uh, a wasted opportunity. How? Because this was this was your first feature. Was that it was, or, or uh, your second? It was my second. Second. Okay. Yeah, I'm trying to think. Yeah. How? <laughs> like being newer to this. How did you know which investors to reach out to or decide? Like, did You're you not, have connections? Did you? Did we, you? What yes. kind of research did you do? Uh, we certainly had connections, uh, and then those connections led to others. So. Uh, uh, Having worked as a composer on several films, uh, you're reaching out to those producers, uh, and those producers are connecting you to others. Uh, so you're really knocking on every door that you've had access to, however peripherally. So it's all about uh, maintaining, creating, maintaining, and uh, uh, maintaining means like a plant. You're watering that plant in order to keep it alive. You're also uh, maintaining those relationships by staying in touch with people that you've worked with. And I've been very uh, diligent about that over the years, and that pays off when you have something of uh, real worth and value and excitement to share with them. And uh, that, so I, there was one guy, uh, for example, uh, he ran a post house that I, I worked with him when I was the program director for the South Asian International Film Festival. So I like most festivals. They have uh, deliverables, and they have those deliverables of uh, getting films that they can screen and QCing all of the films that they receive. All of that went through this post house, and it was a one-man shop, really nice guy. And so he and I had a good relationship, and so when we would have our regular uh, coffee catch-up meeting, uh, he would ask me, what are you working on? So I told him about Imperium, and he said, well, wait a second, I have a guy who worked in visual effects on all these huge films. Now he's bringing investors from those films into other films. So I, he put that relationship together. And so they were somebody that I was talking to uh, very, uh, very intensely about coming into the film. Ultimately, they ran out of time and because we were on an accelerated schedule. But they were very uh, eager to invest in the film. They want to come in on something else. Uh, and so that was something that I never would have expected that the post guy from the festival for the South Asian Film Festival would have an interest in an investor interest for this film about white supremacy that we made in Virginia. Yeah. Uh, you, know, it's, <laughs> yeah. you can't put a lot of these, you can't put the dots together sometimes, uh, but you reach out to everybody that you uh, have dealt with. And I had people from the technology sector that I was reaching out to. I had a friend who runs a, a record label. Uh, you know, it, you never know where these uh, dollars are going to come from. Uh, when we were making She's Lost Control, uh, that was a film that we made largely through crowdsourcing. Uh, and yet, when I bumped into uh, my landlady at my old recording studio, which was above the Strand Bookstore, uh, she asked, well, what are you working on? And in the 10 seconds we had until the door opened, I pitched her on uh, She's Lost Control, just as, well, this is what I'm working on, and it's about this and it's about that. And she said, wow, uh, are you guys looking for investors? And then that allowed me, when I brought her to the table, that allowed me to transition from just being a composer on the film to being a producer on the film. And even though we weren't ultimately... Uh, we didn't take advantage of that uh, that investor interest because we were doing well enough on crowdsourcing. It was an opening, mm -hmm. and uh, and so she has access to all this other investment dollars, and uh, and she manages uh, musicians. She's not a film investor, but the story connected to her, and uh, that's really what you're trying to do is to connect people to stories, and you're not trying to sell them an investment package. 
Uh, you're not an Amway salesperson. It's uh, you're trying to connect to people on a human level, and if they get excited about the story, about the characters, or the filmmaking, then then they will inquire as to whether or not uh, this is something that uh, they want to support. And mm -hmm. on indie film, uh, on the indie film level, there is a great investment opportunity because films are are being made for high production value at low cost, but there's also uh, they're all passion projects. And so people, if you can align people's passions, then you can get uh, people to put their money where their mouth is. Uh, and they typically are passionate about a subject, but they had no idea that they could advance that, uh, that mission or that, uh, that cause uh, further by helping to make this film. And so if they see that as something that uh, is possible for them, a lot of people will help you with money or they will help you with locations or they will connect you to money. Uh, things like that uh, are you, you try to be as open to those possibilities rather than just saying, well, are you, are you a film investor? What's your net worth? Those are very that there's a place for that. But I think those films are studio driven. They are tent poles or they are uh, clearly just money makers. And in the indie film world, even though there are people who want to make money, that's not the entire uh, variable in the equation. There are all these other variables, and you want to make sure that you're matching what the investor or the producer wants out of that film, and hopefully there's an alignment with what the filmmaker is trying to do. So it the that's the long answer to how do I uh, find the investors. It's trying to find an alignment between what they're interest, what stories they're interested in, and and knocking on all the doors that I've uh, tried to map out in working on all these different films and seeing where there might be those interests. And sometimes you're just knocking on all the doors, but it is important not to knock on those doors only once. Like they, you don't want them to feel like the only reason you're knocking on their doors is because you're looking for money. And so there has to be authenticity there. Uh, you have to be part of their social or uh, or uh, uh, not business network, but you're part of their network. You, you have, you're interested in what they're doing, they're interested in what you're doing. Uh, and so I'm always uh, staying in touch with people that I've worked with because I want to know what they're doing. I want to see if I can help. And sometimes they're in a position where they can help. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's, I've learned that the social media world also has that I think it's the 80-20 rule, which is you're reaching out and giving 80% of the time and you're asking 20% of the time. And I think that's true. That came out of real relationship building. And, uh, and it's very true because those people who reach out to me now looking for money or looking for a producer or even for music, uh, I would like to be in the loop of what they're doing uh, when they don't need my help. And... Uh, uh, because I'm interested in what they're doing. Uh, yeah. So that's the hope. Yeah. I yeah, think that's coming really from a, important. It is really important. Well, coming from a place of service when you have relationships with people, because I mean, who wants to, who wants to have a relationship with someone who's only asking them for things? Right. Yeah. That's yeah, <laughs> like, that's, that's not, not that's not a relationship. That's, no. a, yeah, that's a service provider. Yeah, it's yeah. a service provider relationship. <laughs> um, do you have any advice for indie filmmakers with crowdfunding? Anything that you learned that you would do differently, or something you wish you knew beforehand? Uh, how much time it will take out of your schedule. Uh, it's a full-time job uh, preparing for it and then activating it. Uh, so for She's Lost Control, we we spent several weeks preparing, but it also felt like we spent a lot of time on things that did not pan out. Uh, so the film is about a young woman who uh, is a sexual surrogate and uh, she is also a psychology graduate student, and uh, sexual surrogacy is in the gray area of is it uh, a sexual service or is it a, uh, a psychological service? It's in, the, it's in the middle somewhere. And so we reached out to uh, sexual surrogate organizations. We reached out to the psychology community. And while they were supportive, there was not a, uh, a very critical – uh, user base that are a critical mass of users uh, or an audience that they could really tap into. So while they were helpful, it wasn't uh, helpful on the level that we we expected. 
and uh, and we got a lot of support from uh, a lot of different people that we didn't expect. So my neighbor at the recording studio I, I uh, mentioned at Above the Strand, I was uh, neighbors with uh, Julian Casablancas of The Strokes. And it just so happened that he was uh, interested in film music at the time. And so we were collaborating on some stuff, and uh, he was very gracious and grateful uh, for the, the collaborations that we had undertaken. So he offered to help uh, with whatever I was working on. And I said, well, I'm working on this film, She's Lost Control, and we're doing a crowdfunding campaign. Would you like to participate in that? And he said, yeah, whatever you need, I'm there. So he was in the, uh, the crowdfunding video, and it went viral as a result of his very uh, entertaining and very uh, kind uh, contribution to it. Him getting on camera as a rock star saying, uh, I'm going to help Simon in any way I can, on the music, not on the music, whatever you want, that was huge. That really helped us. And so his fans came out of the woodwork. Uh, it got us into uh, Billboard and Rolling Stone and Spin and all these places that we never would have gotten to. And then that cued the indie film press uh, about this film. And uh, then when we got to Berlin to premiere the film, it came with a certain amount of attention and buzz. So it helped all the way around. And the lesson I got from that was don't underestimate your uh, the friends that you have. And even though Julian wasn't a film guy, he helped in the most uh, critical way in this uh, crowdfunding campaign that we thought was strictly dedicated to people who are uh, interested in the sexual surrogacy story or uh, indie filmmaking, micro-budget filmmaking, and yet his fans were from a whole different uh, place in the market. Uh, so you never know where that help can come from. So try to reach out uh, to as many people as you can, and then you might have uh, supporters and evangelists uh, from the most unlikely places. It uh, seems yeah. to be a theme. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly. Yeah, That's exactly. <laughs> yeah, happy accidents. You, when the universe gives you a message, you should you should be ready to hear it. Yeah, for sure. Do you, when you're taking on a project, are there certain things you look for? Because um, both of those films are thriller-esque, right? Is, uh, well, She's Lost Control is more of a character study. Okay. There is a, uh, a thriller element to the yeah. story, but it's... When you look at the trailer, it feels more thriller. Yeah, that's that's what I saw. So I and kudos to the uh, to the distributor for making something that pops. Mm -hmm. But uh, there are enough reviews out there uh, to get behind what the film is really all about, and not just the uh, the the heightened tension element. Uh, but certain things sell, and certain things are harder to sell. So uh, kudos to them for figuring that out. Uh, <laughs> I'm looking for films that uh, I want to see. Simple as that. I'm, I want to put myself in the mind space of uh, an audience member. And so I have to know what I like and what I don't like. Uh, I'm on the programming committee for the Tribeca Film Festival. Uh, I used to be the program director for the South Asian International Film Festival. I was on the jury at the Bermuda Film Festival recently. And all of those things really heighten your uh, sense of taste. What do I like? What don't I like? Because uh, I can't really make a case for why a film is uh, better or worse than another film. All I can tell you is why I like it better. And those are things that might completely contradict why you will like or hate the film. But I can defend very well why it, it appeals to me. And so those are the elements that I look for when I'm scoring a film or producing a film. And I've been very lucky in that I haven't had to say no to uh, very many projects, uh, because most of the films I've said yes to, I just happen to really like them. There was uh, people recommended me because they knew that I was going to like the filmmaker or the story. Mm -hmm. uh, but having said that, I'm I am looking for films and stories that I would want to see. But even more importantly than that, it's the the person who's making the film. Do I like them? Do I want to be in a room with them? Do I want to help them? climb this mountain that's going to be very steep and very cold by the time we get to the top and be around them for, for i mean two yeah. plus years yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly yeah you have a lot of personal contact with someone when you make a film with them <laughs> yes yeah it's it's uh you're watching somebody uh raise a child and then you're watching them give them up for adoption mm. to the rest of the Ooh, world wow that's a really interesting way of putting it <laughs> yeah you you have to learn how to give up control after J david lynch has some of the best advice 
for the creative process I've come across, which is that the only control that you have in this process is the making of your film. You don't have any control after you've made it. So make sure that you enjoyed that process because uh, how it's going to be received is entirely out of your hands. You can't really dictate how people are going to receive the marketing, how they're going to receive the... So like the trailer for She's Lost Control, very different than what we expected it was going to be. So whether luckily we liked it, but what if we didn't like it? Yeah. Uh, what if people went to the film expecting to see that kind of a thriller instead of the kind of slow burn thriller that it is and were disappointed? Uh, we had no control over that. We were very lucky that people loved the film and it was very warmly received by critics, uh, but they could have very easily gone the other way. So uh, you have to come to terms with the fact sooner or later that it is not in your control, uh, how your film will be, uh, and it also goes for music or any creative endeavor, uh, a performance that you give in your film. You don't know what edit it's going to end up in. You don't know which uh, your. You don't know if your best performance uh, during the shoot is going to be left out because it, it's, uh, un, it's unbalanced uh, with the rest of the performance or the other actors or the story or, who knows. Or some sort of technical thing that happened yeah. in that one yeah. shot. Yeah. yeah. Oh, there's a plane flying overhead. I know we couldn't hear it, but it's subsonic and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you, who knows? I mean, Donnie Darko is a, a great example of incredibly timeless and uh, forward-thinking film that was released right after 9-11 at Sundance, uh, or made its premiere at Sundance right after 9-11. Nobody wanted to see a movie about a plane crash or had a pr plane crash prominently featured as part of the plot. And so when it came out, it, it didn't do what, what it ultimately did, which was years later, people fall, falling in love with the film uh, in their own way and discovering it. But upon release, it didn't do what people expected it to do. And it was only discovered later by chance by some, uh, someone who knew about this, uh, this film and, uh, and mentored it and shepherded it. And uh, as a result, uh, it had a second coming totally out of the filmmaker's control. It's just something that you have to be open to. And uh, so I'm looking, going back to uh, the original question, uh, I'm looking for those uh, films and those projects where I'm going to enjoy the process of making it. Because uh, you don't know that when reading the script, oh, this is going to be a blockbuster. And then experience uh, a really difficult process uh, with the filmmakers or the circumstances or your time in life and think, you know, it's all going to be worth it because the film's going to make a lot of money and it's going to make my career. And then what if it doesn't? Then that year or two years that you spent on it is considered to be a waste. I would rather have a film that I look upon the time making it and feel like that was uh, an unbelievable, unmatchable experience. I'll never be able to repeat that because those factors will never come together in the same way. And if the film does great, that's gravy. But and if it doesn't, I have not. I still have that experience. I still have that wonderful uh, journey with these filmmakers. And that's the only way you're going to continue to work with these filmmakers is if they enjoy working with you too. So uh, the advice I got, I think, it was James Seamus. Uh, was the person who drilled that in, which is focus on the people and not the projects, because you never know what uh, what's going to happen to that project. But uh, if you uh, if you're focusing on the right kind of personalities and the right kind of uh, uh, matching visions, then you'll sooner or later end up with something really cool. But you will not have wasted that time. Yeah, that's such great advice. That I is. really like that. What are you working yeah, on? Yeah, that's right what now? I was going to say too. Like, what are you working on? You stole my words. Uh, I'm working on a bunch of stuff, uh, both as a composer and as a producer. Uh, I've also learned another piece of advice uh, was to never say no. Uh, as long as those, those elements that I just described are there, uh, I've said no to some projects just because of scheduling, even though I loved the, the project and the people involved. And then I would come to learn that. Because of what I thought was a scheduling conflict, things ended up working out anyway, and now it's too late. So I've learned to say yes uh, whenever I'm fortunate enough to be asked. So the downside of that is that my plate is so over full now that uh, I'm trying to figure out how to make it all work. And I, it will, but uh, I'm 
working on uh, producing and scoring a documentary called The Interpreter, which is about uh, translators in Iraq and Afghanistan who've been abandoned by the coalition forces that these guys uh, risked their lives to protect. Mm. So it's a, a project that won the MacArthur Grant and the Firelight Grant and uh, recently was very honored to make it to the final round of the Sundance Producer Lab uh, uh, project. Uh, uh, let's see. Um, it's So that's a project that we're uh, finishing editing on. I'll be scoring it next month. Uh, I'm currently scoring two films right now. One is another documentary that I'm uh, producing and scoring called Dows of Dubai, which is about uh, shipbuilders in Dubai who still make uh, these massive ships by hand by carving them out of wood. And it's a dying art. And this film is uh, beautifully shot uh, by Fiona Murguia, who I worked with on her short film. And we maintained a really good relationship, and I produced her last short. And so that was something that I just wanted to help her in any way I could. Uh, let's see. Uh, I'm also scoring a uh, Lebanese-American film called Are You Glad I'm Here? Uh, and that is uh, – I'm in the midst of scoring that now. Uh, I'm – and then I'm also going to be scoring next month a uh, James Franco-produced horror film uh, called Horror Time. And that came out of a relationship uh, with the producer, Rima Sumpat, who uh, she is a member of uh, a filmmaker mixer that I host every month called Squalor. And we also have chapters in New York, and New York, L.A., and Miami. And so she was invited by another filmmaker. We hit it off. And then uh, – and she's – she works with uh, James Franco on a bunch of stuff, and so she invited me to do the music to this. And um, so that's next month. And then uh, I have a number of films that I'm producing. Uh, one is called The Catch, and we're, we're going to uh, shoot that in September. Uh, and that's about uh, a young woman who goes home to Maine to her family, which is a family of lobster fishermen. <laughs> and uh, they are – and she's – uh, she's coming home uh, with her tail between her legs and she has to repair relationships and her life. And then there's a very uh, dubious uh, escape hatch that comes up when, in her life uh, that if she takes it, it will only make things worse. So she's got a very adult decision to make, uh, either to repair the damage or to inflict more, thinking that it's a shortcut. Uh, so that will be shooting... Uh, there's another film that I'm producing and scoring called Radioactive Boy Scout, which is an adaptation of a book uh, about a kid who invent who creates a nuclear reactor in the woodshed uh, at his house uh, in order to impress a girl. <laughs> uh, real story. Uh, it caused a super fund emergency in the, the community oh because of uh, radioactive fallout. Oh Genius goodness. kid. Yeah, uh, and, clearly. Uh, yeah, so, uh, so that's happening. Uh, and then I have a, a Netflix series that I'm developing called The Metropolitans, which is adaptations of short stories written by great authors, Tennessee Williams, Don DeLillo, Zadie Smith, uh, Rick Moody, uh, Patricia Highsmith, uh, Jonathan Franzen, all these great authors. They have all these great short stories that people have forgotten about, and we're turning them into micro-features. Mm, uh, and they're amazing. all about New York, uh, basically a version of New York that doesn't exist anymore. Each episode is a standalone film, uh, and we're pairing up great authors, great filmmakers, great writers. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, we, we are developing it for uh, streaming uh, network and hopefully uh, you know that'll uh, that'll do something. So it's yeah. a it's a long journey because it's an anthology. Each episode is different. Uh, there's a lot of really cool stuff to it. So uh, uh, more on that soon. That's great. Wow, that sounds incredible. You're inspiring with how much how much you have going doing. on. I know. I hope it's I hope it's not uh, scattered, but it's, no, <laughs> no, not <laughs> it's at all. Inspiring, and you're very good at which I think is a talent that filmmakers the the pitching of each story like every single thing I was like oh that sounds really interesting I want to watch that and, yeah me too um, so so I commend you on that because to, to spark interest is really important that I think thank you and I think that comes from just being in the startup world of uh, okay you're in an elevator and with a billionaire and <laughs> how do you convince them to be interested in what you're doing uh, and not waste their time yeah so, yeah, you try to distill what it is that you're working on into as uh, short a snippet as you can, and it takes practice, uh, a lot of practice. And that will also 
allow you to figure out what your film is about. It's just on a creative level. Forget the sales pitch. Uh, let's think about, uh, okay, tell me what your story is about. I'm your composer. What are we making? What, mu what music am, why does this music make sense for this film? Uh, what is it uh, supposed to tell? Uh, that's going to help you with your composer, it's going to help you with your editor, it's going to help with you, you with your actors, and when you make the film, it's going to help you sell it, uh, so whether it's funding to make it or funding to uh, for people to put it in their theaters. But if you don't know what it is, how do you expect other people to know what it is that uh, they should spend time to watch? Whether it's a screener or it's a script, uh, these are all uh, very... Uh, elemental things that we forget once we get into the weeds, but uh, try pitching your films to your mom <laughs> uh, or your uh, babysitter or uh, the guy behind the counter at the deli. Uh, these are, what are you working on? Well, here it is, boom. And just keep practicing it and you'll get better at it and uh, and put your, try to put yourself in their head of, okay, this stranger came up to me and they they're wasting 10 seconds of my time, but at the end of that 10 seconds, it shouldn't feel like a waste. They should feel like, wait, tell me more. Mm -hmm. And if you can get that, then you've got something. Yeah. But you're storytellers, so you already know how to do this. It's just figuring out uh, a different way of doing what you already know how to do. Condensing it. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, we don't. I don't want to take up too much more of your time. I want to let you be able to enjoy. You were so nice. Day. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Happy <laughs> Father's Day. Yeah, thank you. You're welcome. You. Um, where can people find you online? Uh, well, I have a website uh, like a lot of other composers do. It's uh, musictofik.com. Uh, and, uh, and yeah, you just Google my name and something, uh, will come up. Uh, it might be embarrassing, uh, or amusing, but I'm on Twitter, uh, <laughs> as well and Instagram and all that stuff. So, uh, yeah, I'm out there. Uh, just look up any of my films and you'll see me somewhere buried in the credits and then, uh, and then you'll find something. Awesome. 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 Thank, thank you so yes, much. Thank you so You're much. You're most welcome. Yeah. It was a lot of fun. Awesome. Thanks. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Bye.